No, I'm not that quick at making outfit changes in real life. But here is one change that we are going to make this morning. Typically, the first Sunday of every month, we celebrate communion. We're actually moving that to next Sunday. So if you came ready for that, um, we're going to move that back one week. And uh, it has to do something with the nature of the sensitivity of the message today that we're going to be dealing with. And so we are jumping into week number three of our sermon series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And, and our hope is really that you're finding a lot of value in exploring the 90% of the iceberg that's below the surface in all of our lives. The spiritual and the emotional dimensions of who we are and the makeup of what is actually visible on the 10% above the surface. Um, today what I want to do is I want to talk about how God's choice to birth you into the family that you grew up in uh, has a huge influence not only on who you are, but how you follow Jesus. In fact, um, the truth is this, that our families are the single greatest factor in shaping who we become as adults. So if I were to ask you to show me a photo of your family from when you were a child, how much of that would tell me about what it was like growing up? I actually want to show you a few of my family photos this morning. Um, these, these are some fun memories that my parents graciously lent to me at full exposure and risk of their own um, uh, reputation. So this is one of my favorite ones. This is my great-great-uncle Byron who uh, passed away when he was almost 100. This is my grandpa. This is me being totally normal um, and my brother being his normal self. And then, you know, my dad was just a stellar example of calm and serene and perfection and so he's giving us the exact template to follow in life. Um, this, is, this is one of the Christmas mornings. My mom has actually always been very creative. My daughter is super creative, and she does not get that from me. She gets that from her grandmother. Um, my mom made us matching sets of pajamas, which were incredibly comfortable. This was when we uh, were really proud of the gifts that we got for Dad for uh, birthday or Father's Day. or I think it was a birthday. It was his Mustang. Um, and we were, you know, showing that off. This is, <laughs> this is proof that my parents were willing to discipline anywhere. Um, we were on vacation. <laughs> this is right here. Someone got a photo. I think Andy Sando got that photo. Is that right? Yeah, so Andy Sando took that photo. And um, so some other wonderful photos here um, up on the screen, obviously, as well. This one, obviously, was paused at the Tigers game. And so a lot of fun uh, memories in our family growing up. But today I want to talk about the foo factor, okay? As in F-O-O, family of origin, okay? The foo factor. And what I want to do is peel back some of the layers that really underlie the point that our families are the single biggest factor in shaping who we become as adults. Let me give you an example. Let me, I just want to go first. Okay. Now, before I share with you, let me just say this. I'm going to preface this by saying the stories I'm going to share are stories that my family has given me permission to share. And more than that, we worked on this narrative together. So this is hopefully doesn't come across as me throwing shade on my family. This is all of us realizing that God has worked in our story. But for you to see it and to savor the goodness and grace of God, you also need to see under the surface, okay? So this is by no means 
everything that we could share. We are very much a work in progress. Um, there are things that I heard a preacher say one time, there's, there's wounds and there's scars. You want to share your scars because people need to see what's happened. People need to see who you really are. Um, but a scar is a wound that's healed. Okay? A wound, what do you do with the wound? You cover that, you let it heal, and then you reveal it later when it's a scar. So I'm not going to share some of the wounds that we're working through. This is by no means everything that we could share. But our deep desire is this, that you hear a description of what our family, and possibly maybe in certain parts, what your family has experienced, so that you can begin the process of healing and experiencing the grace of God in your own story. I had the blessing of growing up in a messy and very loving family. Lots of affection, lots of generosity. Uh, my mom is actually of Hispanic descent, and so the hospitality and the relational warmth were always on display. Our home was always open to anybody that we knew, and frankly, anyone that we didn't know, especially if they were in need. Uh, both my parents obviously are very committed believers. My dad's actually a pastor's kid, very driven knowledgeable man. And so for dad, doing something right the first way uh, was very important. Rarely saw dad make impulsive decisions, but rather take time to be deliberate. Um, he never cursed, never drank a beer, at least that I ever saw him near to mom. And because there was a big emphasis on doing things proper and right, we've always been a fairly competitive bunch because what happens when you do things right, you win. This ran deep in us, right? Not only on the sports field or in the classroom, but uh, board games were hotbeds of con contention, even arguments. I'll never forget this knockdown, drag-out competition to see who was right about how to correctly express gradations of difference. Do you say it different from or do you say it different than? That was a conversation that lasted for weeks. Or there was another long episode about whether or not scooch is a word, like scooch over, which ended with a literal, we literally ended with a phone call to a Harvard linguist. That's where it got to. But here's the thing. If there was problems in our family, things played out differently. They got really quiet for a long time. Because if you felt strong emotions, you had to find a way to suppress them. Otherwise, it kind of seemed like you were spiritually and personally weak. There wasn't a whole lot of space for learning about and regulating the spectrum of emotions that we all felt. And I think part of this had to do with the strong emphasis on submitting our lives to the Word of God, no matter how we felt. Like emotions follow what is ultimately true. And that's good in part, but that's only part of the story. Um, both my parents would agree. Uh, testify that they grew up in fairly strict and legalistic spiritual communities, churches. Um, both my mom and my dad grew up in families that lacked much language to process a wide range of emotion that came from various wounds from different family members. And so what that led to for us was quick judgments about the assumptions and motives of each other, and it led to these, this passive-aggressive vibe that kind of permeated each season as a child. Now, I'm trying to be honest here. This is not a hopeless story, though, okay? My family of origin, incredible blessing, y'all. My parents genuinely love Jesus, my brother, me. In fact, both of my parents, obviously members of our church and here today, been so affirming and supportive of both my brother and I. Uh, they're our biggest fans. I've, I've always heard 
love from my parents. I can't tell you how many times I've heard my dad say, I love you, I'm proud of you, I say my mom as well, and, and I know that that's not as common these days. And so um, they've always been open with my brother and I and even some of their friends about the real things in their lives. They've never been ones to clean up their story to sound more holy. And because of that, this is, what's, this is what the result of that is. I've had a front row seat to see how God can take a mess and turn it into a monument for his goodness. Okay? Let me give an example. Um, I've experienced, when I was a kid, my dad's angry outburst, and I've heard him then confess and seek forgiveness. And I've also been able to see how the Holy Spirit can uniquely develop um, a, a growing sense of self-control in a man. And I've also learned that that can be a long process with slow increments of progress. So hear me when I say this. I'm genuinely grateful for the real and the raw and the redeemed home that I grew up in. Okay? It was a home that intentionally focused on Jesus no matter how many times we stumbled to get things right. And I've seen that get increase and grow and, and get better over the years, right? But then as I got older, I started to look around. I started to look around at our community, started to look around at my church, and I realized, man, these people don't have their act together either. And I was beginning to see little glimpses of the iceberg under the surface. People had problems. They had busted up marriages. Their kids were drinking or doing drugs, and people had anxiety and depression. And, and a lot of these people were generously welcomed into our home, and I saw people that I thought on the surface were stellar examples of perfection, and righteousness open up to my parents about some of the deep wounds and insecurities and abuses that they were experiencing. And then when my parents would reveal things to me about their own wounds, in the same moment I would feel honored that they were opening up to me, I would also feel uh, terrified that I had no idea how to handle that weight for them as a child who was still processing his own journey into manhood. And so that was actually part of my inner dialogue growing up about this, this false belief about this performance-based approval. Like, as long as I offered what you needed on an emotional and a relational level, then I could then hope to see some of my emotional needs met. So early on, even especially when I early on became a husband and a, a dad and a leader and a pastor, I would talk about how I believed in God's grace, but I, I lived under law. In other words... I could tell you the gospel. I could tell you about the grace of God. Um, it is unconditional. Ha! It is unearned. Ha! It is without compare. Amen. Right? Like I could, I could do the thing. I could tell you the theology of what God was like and what his grace was like. But personally, I rarely rested because I internally believed that my performance and that my helpfulness and that my worth and that my insights, this was all tied to my worth as a person, as a human. God's been working overtime in my soul over the last seven years with my counselor and specifically over the last few years with um, a deeper and authentic community that I've been immersed in. God's been at work at me, and, he, and, he's, and he's still at work in me. He's, he's still at work in my brother. He's still at work in my mom and my dad, and, and I can see this happening. And here's what I know. God's at work in you too. Amen? So I'm curious, how would you describe your family growing up? 
Was it uh, warm and accepting? Or maybe like mine, was it pretty competitive? Or maybe was it like, no, things were tense in my home. My parents were very critical. Or maybe it was very cooperative. Or you, you would say maybe you were close as a family. Or maybe there was a bit of distance, like strict and serious. We don't talk about feelings. Or maybe it was fun and playful. Now, the question becomes, in my mind, where does some of this come from? Is it, is it nature? Are you just born with it? Is it in your DNA? Or is it nurture? Does it 100% come from the home that you grew up in? Like, how you navigate and process through life. Is it nature or is it nurture? And here's the thing, really, no one exactly has figured it out for sure. But this is what I do know. That a deeper walk with Jesus Christ requires that we go back in order to go forward. Okay? In fact, that's a, the big idea today. If you're taking notes, a deeper walk with Jesus Christ requires all of us to go back in order to go forward. You've got to go back to go forward. See, here's, here's what I mean. If you're going to live as your true self in Jesus Christ, who God created you to be, to walk in freedom, it's actually going to require you to break free from broken patterns of your past in order to live in the new life of love in the family of Jesus Christ. See, you've been adopted, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible makes it very clear, you've been adopted into a new family. And there's a new family culture. It's called freedom, it's called healing. But in order to fully identify in this family, there are broken patterns that we need to go back and deal with. When God was giving the Ten Commandments, for example, he connected this reality to the very nature of who he is. Okay, check out Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, and we're actually, if you're able, we're going to stand together and we're going to read this out loud together. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. We're going to read down through verse 6. So it goes like this. You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children the entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. Let's just pray. God, I recognize that the nature of what you're going to be teaching us this morning is very sensitive, it's heavy, it's deep. But Lord, I pray a very powerful prayer. I pray that you would break generational curses. I pray that patterns of sin, of brokenness, patterns of abuse, patterns of, of saying one thing and not living it out, patterns of, 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 of secret harbored resentment, that go deep, Lord, I pray that you would bring healing to all of that in this generation, that we would not pass it on to the next. Lord, do that through the power of your word, through the, through the um, 
energy and the conviction and the power of your Holy Spirit here today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. I lay the sins of the parents on their children. The entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Now, to be honest, there are some who struggle with this. Like, really, God? You're going to punish one generation for something that the previous generation did? Like, why would you punish the kids for something that happened two, three, four generations ago? But then I started doing a little digging here um, into the Hebrew construction of this phrase, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. And literally, it means that there are consequences that repeat themselves over the course of generations. Okay? In other words, the sins of the parents that happen in one generation tend to ripple out in effect into future generations. What happened in one generation often repeats itself in the next. And we see that reality play out all the time, don't we? I mean, you guys know it, it's very common to see families where it definitely doesn't happen in your family, but the families around you for sure, where broken patterns repeat themselves from one generation to the next, right? Things like divorce or alcoholism might run in your family or addictive behavior or sometimes there's sibling rivalry or poor marriages. And you're like, every single generation I'm tracking some sort of poor marriage or there's runaway children or pregnancy out of wedlock or sexual abuse or broken relationships. Um, We have a saying that goes like this. He has Jesus in his heart but grandpa in his bones. Okay? You know, it's entirely possible to have Jesus in your heart, but you got grandpa in your bones. Like, well, Brant, come on. Like, anger just, like, it just runs in our family. It's just like how our family deals with conflict. We just, we, dad had an anger problem. His father had a big temper. I mean, everybody knew grandpa would explode. You know, that's just, that's, that's just, it's our family. We're just hot-blooded, you know? No, there's a generational pattern is what I'm seeing. What you see is patterns from your family exert a very powerful influence. It's kind of like a magnet. There's this gravitational pull, and you don't even notice it sometimes. You just, like, react. And many of us aren't even consciously aware of it. It's why you're just like, oh, I just get so upset by that kind of thing. But but then you begin to go, like, well, your dad did too, and his mom did too, and and, and her siblings and, and parents all did. And like there's this thing that's, Grandpa is in our bones. And so if you've got Grandpa in your bones, getting Jesus in your heart takes a lot of work. If you're going to move freely into the future that God has for you, if you're going to operate in the culture of the family of God, you've got to break some patterns from the past, which requires this, that every follower of Jesus Christ has to go back to go forward, okay? Go back to go forward. Now, in Scripture, uh, Joseph and his family show us exactly what this looks like. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. It's pretty easy to find. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and Genesis 50 is the last chapter of that book, okay? Genesis chapter 50. And if you've read anything from the book of Genesis you'll understand that even from the opening pages of the Bible, there is no such thing as a perfect family. Amen? So there's no guilt. This is not about passing judgment. 
Right from the opening pages of God's Word, there is dysfunction and broken patterns that must be overcome by the power of God. So we're going to see what this looks like practically. Joseph and his brothers, great example. We're going to pick up their story actually at the end of their lives, and then I'm going to fill in the pieces kind of as we go forward, okay? Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now I'm going to stop right there really quick. Do you guys remember who Joseph's father is? It's Jacob, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So Jacob's great-great-grandfather is Abraham, who God blessed. And that blessing was passed on to Isaac, and then that blessing was passed on to Jacob. And then when Jacob was about to die, he got all of his 12 sons together, and he passed on that blessing to all of them. Now you can read through the book of Genesis, but there's something else that Abraham passed on. Abraham passed on his deceitfulness. Abraham passed on his favoritism. Abraham passed on his broken marriage. Abraham passed on his poor management of conflict. And we see this not only in how Isaac lives and how Jacob lives, we also see this in how his brothers respond to the loss of their father. It says that they became fearful. Like they were nervous of how Joseph was going to respond. They saw dad respond to stuff. They heard about Grandpa Isaac. They heard about great great grandpa or great grandpa Abraham. They knew the stories. They're just like expecting Joseph's going to act the same way. Now that dad's dead, he stopped being nice to dad and being nice around him. He's going to take it out on us. All right, that's what they said. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong that we did to him. Now here's the deal. If anyone had legitimate justification for blowing up and just getting absolutely disgustingly angry, it was Joseph. Getting some payback would have been par for the course. Because Joseph, at the hands of his brothers, had experienced trauma with a capital T. Now, some of you in this room, you've experienced trauma as well. And when I look at Scripture, I, I, at least I see three major traumas that kind of are highlighted in Joseph's life. Okay, it shaped him deeply. It shaped his family. Um, if you're taking notes, I'm going to highlight three traumas that Joseph experienced, and then I'm going to highlight three steps that he took to go back. Okay, inviting God to heal the pain of his past so that he could move forward in freedom. So this is very hopeful. My goal is I want to offer you hope today. But let me warn you, before you experience the hope, if you're going to take this seriously today, it's going to hurt before you get there. For years and years and years, you might have been sweeping stuff under the rug, not dealing with it, avoiding it, blame shifting, not taking ownership, dealing with it in a passive-aggressive way, whatever. And you start to go back and you deal with some of this. All of a sudden, all these emotions are going to start coming up because you haven't been dealing with them. It will probably hurt before you feel the hope. You'll feel the hurt, and then you will feel the hope. Okay, so let me warn you in advance. I know what it's like to feel weary from doing the hard work of going back and having conversations you've been avoiding. There's hope on the other end. So three traumas, three steps to invite God to heal the pain. Number one trauma is this. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. Okay, jump back to Genesis 37 if you can. 
Genesis chapter 37, verse 4, uh, it says that growing up, his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. All right, so first of all, if any of y'all parents are playing favorites, just realize it's a bad game. It's toxic. It's going to not go well in the long term. And here's what happens. The, the result of that favoritism, his brothers not only hate him so much, they go as far as to betray him. And I think this is one of the worst traumas you can experience is to be betrayed by people that are supposed to be, they're designed by God to be, are set up to be ones that you should be able to trust. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. His hatred, their hatred for their brother becomes so great that they finally find an opportunity of getting rid of Joseph for good. And their first idea is they're going to kill him. But look at verse 26. Verse 26. After beating him up and throwing him into the pit, the older brother Judah says to his brothers, what are we really going to gain by killing him? And we have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, how about we just sell him to these Ishmaelite traders? After all, he's our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. So the brothers agreed. And so when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver, which is like two years' wages at the time. And the traders took him to Egypt. So they fake his death, they make it look like he's torn to pieces by a wild animal, and they tell their dad that. So the dad, case closed, he's like, my, my son is dead, he's in mourning and grief for the rest of his life. That's trauma, okay? So in, in his bones, Joseph has abandonment, he has betrayal, but that's not actually where Joseph's story ends. The second trauma that we see is when Joseph is sold into slavery, some of these merchants, they come by and they purchase him for two years' wages. Now, this is the first mention of human trafficking in the Bible. Do you know that Joseph was trafficked as a teenager? He's taken captive, sold as a slave in another country. I mean, he loses everything. Think of what he loses. He loses his family. He loses his father. He loses his culture. He loses his land. He loses his dignity. He loses his language. Like any feeling of security or safety is just ripped out of Joseph's life. His friends, his family, his freedom, his whole future is gone. Just imagine the, the scars and the trust issues Joseph must have had around. Like, man, who can I rely on? Like my own family trafficked me into slavery. So Joseph has three major traumas that I noticed. Number one, uh, he's betrayed by his brothers. Number two, he's sold into slavery. And number three, the third trauma here is he actually loses an entire decade of his life in prison. Time that he can never get back. He spent somewhere between 10 and 13 years rotting in a cell for a crime he didn't even commit. Okay? He, he was blamed for sexually harassing his boss's wife when in reality, she was the one who did it to him. Check it out. Genesis chapter 39, verses 6 and 7. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. 
Now, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come sleep with me, she demanded. And Joseph basically rejects this. He's like, no, 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 I'm not going to be unfaithful to you, or I'm not going to be unfaithful to God, I'm not going to be unfaithful to my boss. I, 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 I'm not going to, he's rejecting her advances, and because she feels so rejected, she accuses him of rape, and, and so Joseph is sexually harassed on the job because he has no power over the person who's doing it to him. And he's thrown into prison for an entire decade of his life. In a foreign land, and your family thinks you're dead. No one's looking for you. Just imagine the amount of time and, and silence and solitude that Joseph just has to just be there with his own thoughts. And you just got to wonder, like, what are you thinking? Like, is there something wrong with me? I think that's a lot, what a lot of people do, right? Like, what did I do to deserve this pain and trauma? It, it, it tends to be the first response because you want to believe the best about the other person. Joseph's just sitting there with that thought for 10 years. God, what's wrong with me? Some of you know that feeling, right? You look back in your story and you're like, all of this stuff is, the screwed up stuff is happening in my life. What is, what's the thing with me, God? Why, why is it happening to me? And so you get to Genesis 50 and you have to ask, man, how does this guy even move forward? By age 30, his life seems to be pretty much a tragedy. Like, how do you take these kinds of blows, beating after beating after beating in life? And around 15 years of pain and suffering and disappointment, three major trauma events probably shattered any sense of safety or self-worth that Joseph has in this world. And how do you get payback for that? And this is probably what Joseph's brothers are expecting him to just unload with the fury of thunder on him. Thank you. They're probably thinking, man, he's got this thing in his mind like you guys are dead meat. Right, Genesis chapter 50, verses 16 and 17. So as a precursor to this, they send this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong that they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father beg you to forgive our sin. How do you think Joseph responds to that? How would you respond to that? That person who hurt you, who offended you, who took years from you that you can never get back, how would you respond to them cowering in fear and begging for your forgiveness? Don't answer too quickly. I want you to really think about this because it's one thing for the, the 10% of you that's above the surface that everyone can see. It's, a, it's one thing for the 10% of you to assume you'd forgive, but what's the 90% of you holding on to? What's that thing for you that would be unforgivable, that would make you think, serves them right. They deserve this. It's my turn to kick them when they're down. That thing that would make you just get so angry and want to get even. And maybe that's something you're still struggling with. Maybe it's something that God is wanting to prepare you for. But what is something that's too drastic or too cruel or too unfair for you to forgive? What level of betrayal would be too much for you? 
want you to really think about this, because if, for many of us, if we are betrayed by family, trafficked and sold into slavery, and sent to prison for a decade for something we didn't do, something that was done to us, we wouldn't only be struggling with unforgiveness. I think a lot of us would be walking away from God altogether. And for many people, it takes a lot less than that. Now, listen, I, I pray that you never, ever had this level of trauma growing up. But we all have baggage. We all have hurts and wounds that God wants to redeem. God wants to heal. That's the part of you, the 90% under the surface that Jesus wants access to. And it's much easier if you surrender, to it, surrender it to him right now. The best time to get healing was yesterday. The second best time to start healing is today. God wants to restore you like Joseph, but you have to be intentional to invite him under the surface to the 90% of your iceberg that's below to transform it. Because here's the secret. If you don't allow God to transform your pain, you will transfer it forward You might think you're being kind to someone by just bearing the brunt of it all on yourself and never bringing it up again. You're deceiving yourself to think that the next generation is not experiencing any of it from you. Pain that is not transformed by God gets transferred. You pass it on to future generations. So you've, you've got to be brave. You've got to invite God to go under the iceberg and transform your pain, and he will. I promise you he will. And I know some of you are like, well, I get, I see that in the Bible, that's miraculous, but would you be encouraged with this, that yours is also a kingdom story that God wants to redeem? This is a here and now thing, that healing can start today. And, and this, is, this is the hope, that your family is not your destiny, amen? Your family history is not your destiny. When Jesus enters the picture, God, your Father, adopts you. And listen to this, he can also reparent you. He can father you as a father. The Holy Spirit can teach you how to actually set healthy boundaries and to deal with conflict. It's such an important thing to realize that you can live in an emotionally healthy way. So what I want to do is I want to close with three steps that you could take. Three steps to living in an emotionally healthy way that you can go back and deal with the pain of your past. You may want to take notes on these as well, because this is not only going to be helpful for current trauma, but I think any future trauma you might face, this will be something that will prepare you for that. The first thing that I see Joseph do is step number one, is grieve your losses, okay? Genesis chapter 50, verses 16 and 17, I didn't actually read the entire section to you. I don't know if you noticed that. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us, to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong that they did to you, for, <coughs> excuse me, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. And here's what happens next. When Joseph received this message, he broke down and wept. And, and this is important to notice. He didn't cry, he wept. Cry is something you do when you're like, oh, I broke my toe. And it hurts. Weep is something you do when you break your heart. Grief 
Weeping is an expression of grief, and good grief is a gift from God. You actually need to allow yourself to grieve something that was genuinely wrong that you have no way of fixing. And I get it, most of us don't want to go back and, and feel the hurt and feel the pain of our past. You're like, it, it just happened back then, I want to leave it back then. I promise you, you're not actually doing that. You're, you're still responding to that the same way to other things today. The way that you navigated that, if you never go back and grieve this, how you respond to challenges today is how you responded to that. We don't want to go back and feel the hurt and the pain of our past. You're like, what good is it going to do? Here's what happens. Joseph actually took time to grieve what happened to him. In fact, in Genesis 45, um, which is the account of when this was happening in real time, I've been noticing how easy it is just to skim past all of the emotions and the feelings in the Bible. I never really kind of spent a lot of time on this, but Genesis 45, when Joseph was first reunited with his brothers and they were revealing who he was, verse 2 says that Joseph wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him and word of it spread quickly throughout the whole palace. He cried so loud the whole palace knew about it. In other words, Joseph's not justifying or rationalizing the painful years and saying just like, oh, I'm older now, I'm just moving on. Oh, no, no, no. Out of the honest grieving of his pain, Joseph is able to forgive from his heart and actually bless his brothers who betray him. So number one, you have to grieve your losses Step number two is you have to trust that God is guiding your life in the good and in the bad. And I think a lot of Christians, people who follow Jesus, would be like, I, I can clearly see when God is working in my life and things are going well, but it's really hard when this horrible stuff is happening. Like, look at Joseph. Joseph passes this line on when describing this story to his successive generations. This, this, this line repeats over and over and over in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. But the Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph and was showing him his unfailing love, his faithful love. It's amazing. When all of this terrible stuff is happening to Joseph, even in the darkest moments, in the prison, in the pit, Joseph is like, I know my God is at work behind the scenes, orchestrating his sovereign purpose for my life here. It's not just the good stuff in your life. I, I, Joseph's like, I see God's blessing is, wor is working through in spite of, around, with, through sometimes all of the bad stuff. Joseph says, you know what? I know that God sent me ahead of my family as part of his sovereign plan. Now understand me for a moment. I'm not saying God caused your trauma. Nor am I saying God even approves of it. But you miss out on healing when you don't believe that God can bless it. He can bless you through it. He can bless others because of you. Because God is a whole lot bigger than any scheme the enemy can put in your life. Amen? But the Lord was with Joseph and God is with you in, in every mistake, in every sin, in every detour in your life. With the Lord, it becomes a, future, a runway for future blessings. The Lord was with Joseph, and this is the only way that Joseph can look back over 22 years and still point to the faithfulness of God. 
Later, he comes face to face with his brothers down in verse 19. These are brothers who have abandoned him, who have abused him. And he says these incredible words to them. Joseph replies, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? That's what happens when we're taking our anger out on somebody. We're trying to play God. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He, he brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. He doesn't minimize the trauma. He speaks the truth. He says, you guys tried to hurt me, and that was evil. Y'all, healing requires that you speak the truth about what happened. Joseph tells the truth. You tried to harm me. You tried to hurt me. But then I see the invisible hand of my God moving in my life, kind of like a boomerang taking those broken parts and bringing it back around to bless you, my brothers, to bless this nation. He's like, God sent me ahead of you into Egypt to save your butts. That's the next step in healing, is that you've got to trust that God is guiding your life in the good and in the bad. Who's responsible for Joseph ending up in Egypt? Evil intentions from his brother and at the same time, divine redemptive plans of God. It's not an either or. You intended to harm me, God meant it for good. You've got to see that God is guiding your life. And the third step is this, and this is probably the hardest one, and the one that requires the most supernatural invention, inter intervention, is number three, you've got to practice radical forgiveness. Practice radical forgiveness. Think of all that Joseph could have said. Right? He's sitting in his big Pharaoh's throne, his brother's not-so-beloved brothers come before him. They're begging him for food. He could have stayed bitter and been like, I'm not even going to see them. They cut me off. I'm cutting them off. They wanted it this way. Let's just see how it plays out now. <laughs> you laugh because I've heard that before. In my own house, from people that we invited in who are sharing their problems with us, and they bring up stuff from their family, they're like, well, they started it, so let's just see how it happens. That Joseph could have done that. You stay out there. I'm, I'm going to send a guard out to you. I'm not even going to deal with you. Or he could have said, come bow down. Humbled them instantly. Blow up in anger. Just bite their heads off with rage. He could have taken revenge, right? Like, I'm going to throw y'all in prison for 10 years. See how you like it. No, no, what does Joseph do? His response, I think, is incredibly supernatural. This is not normal to humanity. This is divine. This is the culture of the family of God. He continues in verse 50. Am I God? Can I punish you? No, no, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Now notice this. So don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of your children, of you and your children. And he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. 
Translation, I'm breaking this cycle of generational dysfunction. It stops right here. It stops right now. Instead of paying you back for what you did to me, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless your children. And I'm going to continue that blessing for generations to come. Like, I'm going to set a new pattern of health and blessing in this family. It stops with me. Guys, he let God transform his pain. And out of that, then he forgives his family. And this is so important. This is not ordinary forgiveness. This is a special kind of forgiveness called grace. It's not mercy, it's grace. Mercy says, I'm going to let you off the hook for what you did. I'm not going to count it against you. But that's not grace. Grace goes further. Grace says, not only do I forgive you, not only do I not punish you, I'm going to choose to find a way to bless you. I am going to give you something that you don't deserve and that you can never pay me back with. This is grace, my friends, and it it only comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. Joseph is pointing us to the cross. Joseph is pointing us to the same Jesus who was betrayed by those closest to him. He was physically abused. He was beaten. He was falsely accused. He, was suffered even though he, he suffered even though he was innocent. And on the cross, he suffered the worst fate of all by taking everything that you've done wrong against God and he bore the punishment for himself. Jesus suffered and died so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be healed and restored Why do we put our trust in Jesus? Because he can relate to this, right? There is no other God in the pantheon of world religions that is like him. Jesus didn't wait for you to be made right with him. He came to you to make it right with you, even though you were the perpetrator. And all of our sins, all all of the sin committed against him, and frankly, all the sin committed against us by other people, All of that sin and all of that shame is heaped on Jesus. And when you look at the cross, you can say what you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the healing of many nations. You can forgive because all of what has been done to you has been paid for on the cross. It's not going unattended to. One of two things will happen. And you have to be able to trust this. This is the gospel. One of two things will happen. When you forgive somebody, that person that wounded you, that abused you, that hurt you, that betrayed you, there is a debt that that sin incurs. And it is either paid for by Jesus on the cross. Or it will be paid for by that person someday for eternity. It is not going unattended to. Am I God that I can punish you? My unwillingness to forgive just speaks to my inability to believe the gospel. That's how Joseph forgives. That's how each one of us can forgive. This this is what breaks the generational chains of dysfunction. The cross is what sets captives free. Grace is fierce. Grace is aggressive. It doesn't repay evil for evil. Instead, it receives that evil and says, I'm going to choose to overcome it with the goodness of God. God's made a way for your pain to be transformed so you don't have to transfer it to the next generation. 
And I want to ask you, is there wounds? Is there pain? Is there something that is genuinely wrong that has been ha- that's happened to you? Maybe even in the family of origin that you grew up in that God wants to transform. Before I close, I want to give you like a minute or two just to sit in silence before the Lord and ask him to reveal some of this to you. Ask him to reveal what it is he wants to heal. on a personal level my counselor has been very helpful to me over the last seven years just helping me kind of trace God's hand in my life carve new patterns for relating to others set healthy boundaries uh, and so on and and maybe counseling might be the next step the best next step for you in this journey we can certainly recommend a few counselors if that's something that you're ready to take a step in Uh, or maybe you're more interested in something you can have your hands on much sooner um, so we actually have a few different books available here um, that we'd love to just get in your hands. They've been super helpful to each one of us um, in our journeys of uh, growing as emotionally healthy um, followers of Jesus. And if you're interested, just come and put your name on the sheet, and we'd love to get one of these or both of these books into your hands. Um, they're, they're fantastic, fantastic books. Um, but let's do this. Let's stand together. I want to. I, I just want to do something unique. I want to stand together if you're able to and we're going to we're going to pray together as we as we finish this message um, and I want to encourage you to put your hands out in kind of a posture of receiving. Cuz this is going to be something where healing is available but you don't experience it until you receive it. And I want to just approach the Lord together in a posture of maybe you're ready to receive some of the healing that he wants to do in your heart and in your life. Let's pray. Father, I I recognize that each one of us has a very unique, very different uh, story that we come from. And in that story, there's a ton of pain and wounds and baggage and hearts and We know, Lord, that you want to heal that. You want to transform that for your glory to turn a mess into a miracle. So number one, Lord, I I pray that you would would, um, reveal to us the thing that we really need healing for. And I pray that each one who's genuinely approaching you with this posture right now would have the courage to stop grasping so tightly to this pain and slowly open their grasp to allow you to grab hold of it and to take it and to heal it and in that process God give us the courage to grieve 
And it might take longer for some of us than others, God, but I pray that you, over time, would transform that pain into power. That you would turn that mess around into a miracle. That fighting would become forgiveness. And that hurt would become hope. Each one of us has something very different and unique. And Lord, we pray that you would deal with us each in an individual way, in a personal way, in a tender and intimate and close way. That you'd not only reveal your greatness, the power that you have to take something so horrible and turn it into something so good, but God, we pray that you would display your goodness as you are tender with our hearts and our lives. While we're in this moment, I, I just want to ask you, maybe you've never allowed God into your life at all. You, you've, you wouldn't say, I'm a Christian. You wouldn't say, I, I put my trust in Him. And yet you've come to this space this morning with pain that you know only God can deal with. That only God can make sense of. That only something so far beyond you can actually do something with. And today you're ready to let go and to let God have it. The Bible makes it very clear that you can be forgiven yourself, which is the first step in healing, is to be forgiven by God from the sin that, that you've committed in your life and the ways in which you've estranged yourself from God. And today you can be made right with him the Bible says if you confess, your, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He died to pay the penalty for your sins so you could be forgiven and he raised a new life so that you could have new life. And the Bible says if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus that he did that for you and you surrendered to him as Lord, you can be forgiven and made a child of God and be birthed into a new family. I give you that opportunity today. Would you confess to God your sin? And would you invite him to forgive you and to transform your pain in your life and, and to adopt you into his family? Surrender to him as, as the Lord of your life. He's the one taking charge now. The Bible says if this is the case, you now are a new creation. Jesus, I pray that you would bring healing today to every single person here, to those watching online. Amen. If you uh, need to get rolling, totally understand, feel free to be dismissed at this time. If you'd like to stick around a little bit longer for some moments with the Lord, we're going to sing another worship song together.